Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. We want to go straight into the tragic event of last week, which is the death of George Floyd, a black man from Minnesota who suffocated to death when a white police officer named Derek Chauvin knelt on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. This has sparked a wave of protests in the US and around the world and has acted as a reminder that racism continues to be an international emergency. We're recording this during Blackout Tuesday, a social media movement of solidarity. Activism across social media has never been more fundamental, uh, and we've never seen a movement like this, I don't think, on Instagram. But tackling racism is about more than just reposting a meme or liking a caption. The writer Zing Seng tweeted today, Please don't just post a black square. Write your MP now with these demands. Immediate suspension of UK sales of tear gas, riot shields and rubber bullets to the US. Condemn Trump's use of force against his own citizens. Release the delayed report into the British and minority ethnic COVID deaths. What we all need to try and understand is that racism is systemic and structural and entrenched. It is not about the singular, it is about the collective. As white women, Dolly and I exist within those structures and have both knowingly and unknowingly benefited from them. And that it is our collective responsibility to dismantle racism. We are not apart from racism, we are part of it. What we can strive to do is to become anti-racist, and that starts with education. It's important we educate ourselves. Where possible, we need to give financial donation, and we need to be utilising our privilege and societal and structural power that we have just for being white to amplify black voices. And when I say we, this is Pandora and I, this is always stuff that we can be better at. We will be giving information on these things today, although it will be by no means exhaustive because this education is infinite and lifelong. And parts of it will feel uncomfortable or confronting and you might make mistakes along the way. I know personally, I certainly have. Um, But these are things that should act as even more of a reason to do this work rather than create discomfort that means we shy away from it. What I've seen a fair amount about on social media is the idea that automatically being white doesn't make me racist or I've seen quite a lot of all lives matter or people saying there's a pandemic going on. And I wanted to read out something that Scott Woods wrote. The problem is that white people see racism as conscious hate when racism is bigger than that. Racism is a complex system of social and political levers and pulleys set up generations ago to continue working on the behalf of whites at other people's expense, whether whites know or like it or not. Racism is an insidious cultural disease. It is so insidious that it doesn't care if you borrow a white person who likes black people. It's still going to find a way to infect how you deal with people who don't like you. Yes, racism looks like hate, but hate is just one manifestation. Privilege is another. Access is another. Ignorance is another. Apathy is another. It reminds us to look at the relative ease of which we got our jobs as white women that we wouldn't have necessarily got if we weren't white, the access that we have through those jobs and making sure that we invite other people onto the platforms uh, that we have. And ignorance and apathy are things that we can best tackle with uh, research and education and reading. Responding to Black Lives Matter with a statement about all lives matter misunderstands and hampers this urgent cause. Here's an extract of a piece written for Harper's US last year by Rachel Elizabeth Cargyle on why you need to stop using the term all lives matter. 
If a patient being rushed to the ER after an accident were to point to their mangled leg and say, this is what matters right now, and the doctor saw the scrapes and bruises of other areas and counted, but all of you matters, wouldn't there be a question as to why he doesn't show urgency in aiding what is most at risk? At a community fundraiser for a decaying local library, you would never see a mob of people from the next city over show up angry and offended, yelling, all libraries matter, especially when theirs is already well-funded. Similarly, when people have been saying, but there's a global pandemic going on, no one is suggesting that this pandemic has been anything but awful. It's also important to note that this is not just an issue that is happening in the US. This is happening in the UK. This is happening across Europe. This is happening all over the world. Today, we will be sharing resources, books, social media accounts, charities where you can donate, mentorship schemes that helped us understand and continues to help us understand about white privilege and the good-bad binary, which is the idea that I am good, so I am not racist, or I am bad, so I am racist, which is hindering our collective understanding of the nuances of racism. I'm sure we will make mistakes, not just today, but going forward and Please do get in touch if you feel like there's something that we are not being thoughtful about or should really be discussing or should really be reading. We'd really love to hear from you. We're going to start with books. Lots of these are books that we've read. Some of them are books that we've spoken about on past episodes and some of them are books that we haven't read yet. I shared some on my Instagram page and people... Uh, really helpfully responded with dozens of suggestions of their own. So we've added those titles into this reading list and we've also added in lots of recommendations from lists compiled by The New York Times, Elle, Vogue, BuzzFeed, Galdem, Refinery29 and Bustle. We will share these on our Instagram as a written list, on Twitter and in the show notes. Please do email show at gmail.com or tweet us with more titles you recommend and we will add it to our list. We're going to begin with non-fiction recommendations. The first is Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo Lodge. Please note that Rennie has said that she feels uncomfortable about a spike in book sales after George Floyd's death. She's encouraged borrowing a copy from a friend or a local library and donating what you would have spent on it to organisations that tackle racial injustice. If you do buy the book, she's asking those people to match the price of it with a donation. There is currently a petition to get why I'm no longer talking to white people about race onto the GCSE syllabus. We signed that this morning and we will share that in the show notes and also on our Twitter account. White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, Women, Race and Class by Angela Davis, White Rage by Carol Anderson, Brit-ish by Efwa Hirsch, My Name is Why by Lem Sisse, I Am Not Your Baby Mother by Candice Braithwaite, who Pandora spoke to for an author special, which is coming up on the show today, Slay in Your Lane by Elizabeth Uva Benene and Yomi Adegoke, A Burst of Light by Audrey Lord. Don't Touch My Hair by Emma DeBeery. Taking Up Space, The Black Girl's Manifesto for Change by Ore Ogunbi and Chelsea Kwachi. Between the World and Me by Tanahasi Coates. Me and White Supremacy by Leila F. Saad. The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot. How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. The Good Immigrant, compiled by Nikesh Shukla. The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. Natives, Race and Class in the Ruins of Empire by Akala. Ain't I a Woman, Black Women and Feminism by Bell Hooks. And some fiction. Beloved by Toni Morrison. The Colour Purple by Alice Walker. An American Marriage by Tayari Jones. Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reid. Ordinary People by Diana Evans. The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, Queenie by Candice Carty-Williams, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, On Beauty and White Teeth by Zadie Smith, Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, and Citizen and American Life by Claudia Rankine. If you can afford to donate, here are some charities. George Floyd's Memorial Fund. You can donate to Black Lives Matter. 
Black Protest Legal Support UK, which is a group of lawyers and legal advisors providing free legal advice and representation to UK Black Lives Matter activists and protesters. This is particularly important with upcoming UK marches. Liberty, which is a UK organisation challenging justice and defending freedom made up of campaigners, lawyers and policy experts. Stop Hate UK, which is an organisation that began in 1995 as a direct response to the murder of Stephen Lawrence. It is now a service for victims of hate crime. The Stephen Lawrence Trust helps young people overcome disadvantage and discrimination, ensures businesses are more inclusive of diverse talent throughout their management structures and continues to campaign for fairness and justice. The Innocence Project exonerates those who have been wrongly convicted through DNA testing and reforms the criminal justice system to prevent future injustice. Show Racism the Red Card is the UK's leading anti-racism educational charity. They deliver anti-racism workshops to more than 50,000 people each year, while also providing specialist training to teachers. And Black Visions Collective is a Minnesota-based organisation dedicated to sustainable black liberation. The Hilo has donated to Stop Hate UK and Show Racism the Red Card. And from now on, 50% of all profits from any sales of the Hilo's merchandise will go to Show Racism the Red Card. The other 50% will continue to go to Women's Aid. We will also link to the Justice for George Floyd petition in our show notes for our listeners to sign if they haven't already done so. Something that's been said quite a lot over the last week is it is not the responsibility of black individuals to educate you while you are learning about racism. Don't take your questions to black people. There is enough information online and in libraries for you to find that information yourself. We all need to talk about it, but it is our responsibility to educate ourselves. And the Internet makes it very easy to find those materials and access those conversations now. Leila F. Saad wrote on Instagram, I understand that many of you are new in our spaces and to our work. I ask that rather than you sending us messages and comments asking for resources, you seek out the resources we have already created. In the links in our bios, in our highlights and on our websites, you will find countless ways to engage in anti-racism work. Books, classes, courses, podcasts, interviews, articles, videos, etc. And if it's a general question you have that you can't find the answer to in those places, ask yourself, can this question be Googled? If I'm white, can another white person help me with this question? If I'm a non-black person of colour, can another non-black person of colour help me with this question? So here are some accounts to follow on social media. At The Conscious Kid, Tarana Burke, who is the founder of the Me Too movement. She's at Tarana Burke on Twitter. Galdem, an online and print magazine which shares the perspectives of women and non-binary people of colour. You can follow them on social media, but it's also an award-winning website. Tamika D. Mallory on Twitter and Instagram, who's an American activist. Munro Bergdorf on Twitter and Instagram, who's a UK activist. Priv to Prog, From Privilege to Progress, which is a national US movement to desegregate the conversations about race. Their Instagram page is full of articles and information which makes it clear what showing up against racism is. Black Lives Matter, BLK Lives Matter on Twitter and Instagram, which is a global organisation with a mission to end white supremacy and build power and agency on a local level to stop violence against black communities. To emphasise, these are, of course, just a starting point. Please do your own research and then do share resources with your friends as well. I also just had the 1619 podcast by the New York Times recommended to me, which is about the year that 20 enslaved Africans arrived on the British colony of Virginia. A couple of people have also asked us about mentoring, which is something I've mentioned a few times. You can do it informally. My mentee and I met at a work event and we meet up once a month, although obviously via Zoom at the moment. But there are also schemes through which you can mentor women. It's useful to mentor anyone if you are even somewhere established in your career but it becomes particularly important when you are white and you have a platform because it allows you to share that access with others who are less privileged than you some mentorship schemes which we will link in the show notes include girls out loud fluid and roots elizabeth and yomi who wrote slay in your lane talked about the importance of mentorship when they came on the show we will link their episode in the show notes we'll also link to our interviews with rennie edo lodge and candice carty williams but these interviews are nowhere near as important or comprehensive as the work of these women themselves. So by all means, please 
do listen to them, but this is just a very small part of the research that should be done into their work. And also please note that Pandora and I are two white people from a very specific background and we encourage you to listen to many more conversations with these black writers with lots of other different interviewers with different perspectives and experiences and questions if you type in a writer's name or a speaker's name into the itunes app store and then scroll down there will be a list of episodes of all the podcasts in which they've been featured in and you can listen to them directly from there and also it's a great way of discovering new podcasts it is i often do that I was also interested in finding books to talk to children about race. I just bought Raising White Kids by Jennifer Harvey after reading a piece she wrote for CNN, uh, I think yesterday, called How Do I Know I'm Not Raising the Next Amy Cooper? I'll link that in the show notes. It's obviously important for any parent that we cultivate a diverse bookshelf for our children. And the unfortunate truth is that publishing is historically very white. Uh, That's slowly and belatedly changing, although it won't be overnight, which means we need to pay attention so that we don't end up with stories that only centre white children. Other books that have been recommended, All Are Welcome by Alexandra Penfold and Brad Meltzer's Ordinary People Can Change the World book series, which has books about Rosa Parks and Harriet Tubman and other important black figures from history. The New York Times has a list of books for children, which I've added to my reading list, including A Snowy Day and A Poem for Peter. I will link that piece in the show notes. And another brilliant resource is We Need Diverse Books, which you can find at diversebooks.org. A piece of advice that I wanted to share that I've read online over the last few days that I've found really crucial is that as we gain this information, we need to think about who we're passing it on to and sharing it with and discussing it with. Who are the people in our lives who don't have access to these online resources, who you know hold racist views or who are unwilling to accept their role in ending racism as a white person or who doesn't understand the concept of structural racism. It might be older members of your family, a boss or a colleague or maybe even a friend. And those are the people not to miss in these conversations in the following days and weeks and months. They're the people to ring or message or email now. And they're the people to share those facts and stories and articles with. I gave Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race to quite a few friends for their birthday and my sister after I read it. And I always keep a few copies on my shelf in case someone mentions that they haven't read it, as reading that book gave me so much understanding that I didn't have before. And it was the most instructive uh, piece of reading for me about why reverse racism does not exist and the difference between prejudice and racism. On the subject of buying books, we know that not everyone can afford to buy a book whenever they feel like it. So please do remember your local libraries when they eventually reopen. And another idea is that you and a bunch of mates could each buy a different book and then do a book swap. Or if you live with flatmates or family members, you could club together to buy a title and then share the reading of it. If you aren't a natural reader, then most of these books will also be available as an audiobook on Audible. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Support for the Hilo comes from Babylon Storen's new Morvedre Rosé. With summer around the corner and green spaces opening up, it is definitely seasonally appropriate to crack open the rosé. Be the first to taste the new 2020 vintage of Babylon Storen's Mourvedre Rosé with hints of raspberry and rose petals, an elegant dry wine from their beautiful gardens in the Cape Winelands of South Africa. If you buy three or more bottles of 2020 Babylon Storen Mourvedre Rosé, you get a 500ml tin of their extra virgin olive oil as a gift. Go to thenewt.co.uk forward slash thehilo. Thank you to Babylon Storen's Mourvedre Rosé. 
Candice Braithwaite is the founder of Make Motherhood Diverse, an online initiative that aims to encourage a more accurately representative and diverse depiction of motherhood in the media. She is also the author of a searing new book, I Am Not Your Baby Mother, What It's Like to Be a Black British Mother. Panda rang her up to talk about it. How are you doing, Candice? I'm done in, but I'm happy and I'm safe and all of that other positive stuff. You know, I was saying to my other half, I was like, I hope people think we don't do witchcraft, you know, because the timing of the book coming out and and the rush of conversation in um, in respect to George Floyd's public lynching, as I describe it, and then people really opening up their eyes and wanting to be educated, um, it's really put the book in a space that I wasn't prepared for, not just yet anyway. And that's been a bit overwhelming, but I can only hope it's for the good, for something good. Yesterday you posted this impactful message on Instagram. I wondered if you'd be able to read it for us. This is day two for most of you and day 11,680 for me. So whilst most screens fall black and captions fall quiet, I see this as a perfect moment for me to be as loud as I can because I am about this life. A blackout means nothing if you aren't willing to clean house. When did you last bad up your mate because you know they are racist? Did you really work through me and white supremacy or were you just on some Instagram hype? If you knew a black colleague was being paid less than you, did you advocate for them? As most screens fall black, I have to ask my UK audience, does the name Dorothy Gross ring any bells? Do you know there was never a conviction for the new crossfire? Do you know what the McPherson report is? This is not a test, and whilst I appreciate the sentiment, I am too scared to fall silent. Our silence has already cost us so much, and history has taught us that you guys will only mute your own voices for so long, and then it's back to regular scheduled programming. Black lives will continue to matter long after this moment of internet silence. I implore you not to forget that. I Am Not Your Baby Mother is ostensibly a mumwa, quote-unquote, but it's so much more than that. It's a call for Britain to see black mothers in the same way it sees and culturally allows space for white mothers. It's a manifesto with many shocking statistics. For example, black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth than white women, and black babies have an 121% increased risk of being stillborn. And yet, you write, despite the much higher risk for pre-pregnancy illness, there were zero UK resources for soon-to-be black mothers. How much of your desire to write, I am not your baby mother, stemmed from a place of knowing that there was nothing like this out there in the UK? Um, do you know what? None of it. When I finished the proposal, I was, I was number one gobsmacked and I was really embarrassed because I was like, you were letting your ego get in the way of a really important thing. Of course, this country needs this. Of course, the world needs this. Of course, there are black women who have read pregnancy memoirs and not seen themselves. But more importantly, of course, white mums need to read this. And so I can't lie and say that I was like, yeah, I think this is going to be super important. I, I was trying to run away from it, but it hunted me down in there. <laughs> Why do you think you were so reluctant to write it? Is it because you thought it was a saturated space or did you just think it's too personal, I don't want to put myself in that position? I Number one, I thought it was too much of a saturated space. Number two, many, many of the mum type books that I was coming across um, I'll be frank, they seem to have been printed based on the person's social media stats rather than actual talent. And I was like, mm, yeah, I just feel like if I write about being a mum, I don't think I'm going to be taken seriously as a writer. And that was all I wanted to gain. And so I just thought, yeah, writing about motherhood is already going to put me in a place where the book will not be taken seriously. And again, like, I'm so embarrassed because a week like this has shown that I couldn't have been further from the truth. 
It is sad as well that writing about motherhood is still seen. I, I, I totally understand but that you have to pick between um, being taken seriously and writing about motherhood. As if the two things can't go together. And also, there, of course, there are really heavy elements to my book, but also I think there's really funny moments as well. There are bits when I was doing the audio book, I almost pissed myself. I thought, no, you are so funny sometimes, babe. <laughs> and so it's not always doom and gloom. Um, but the, the motherhood books I had been coming across were a little too heavy on the whole, oh, I'm drunk by bath time vibe. And so I was a bit worried about what the expectation was going to be with me writing a book about being a mum. You're also a social media influencer and you write have frequently found yourself to be the only black influencer in the room. I wanted a family like mine to be front and centre of it all, visible and present, because I believe that you cannot be what you cannot see, you write in your book. Can you talk a little bit about your experience within the mum blogging community? Yeah, it's been an uphill battle, to be honest. It's been an uphill battle. I just feel like I came into a space, uh, one of one, and people didn't rush to it to to accept that. Especially because I want to remind people, it's not just about race; it's also about class. I, you know, I wasn't the poshest. I wasn't the coolest. I'm just this run of the mill black girl from South London who sometimes speaks before she thinks and the old guard of the mummy blogging space were the complete opposite to that and so even though I feel like I've achieved great things it's been bloody hard it's been really hard to get the mummy blogging space and even I would say the UK influencer space used to a face like mine used to a family like mine and I think I say in the book, if I had a crystal ball, we wouldn't even be having this combo because I, my mental health has taken a licking. I'm so sorry to hear that. It is an incredible book, but I imagine it really wasn't easy to write. In Hood Feminism, Mickey Kendall points out that the only time that black mothers are centred is when Beyonce or Serena Williams talks about motherhood. And I agree. And what's so interesting about that is they are African-American. I am black British. And even when I was having my children, I really struggled to see quote unquote role models. All of my reading material was bought from Amazon from African-American writers. There was nothing available about motherhood and pregnancy specifically directed at black British women. And so, yeah, Kendall's right. She's right. Um, they are the epitome of motherhood role model. And unfortunately, even though they are African-American, their influence is so vast that typically the UK are like, yeah, they belong to us too. But there are many, many differences um, when it comes to black British mothers and African-American mothers. Like, I fear a lot of things for my son. I fear a lot of things for my son. It is absolutely a possibility that the Metropolitan Police will kill him. We've had these situations numerous times in the UK. The violence, the murders aren't as um, often and as public as in the US. So being able to have the space to write a book solely about being a black British mum, I think it's really bridged that gap. And you really dig into those nuances in race in the book the differences that you discover between your husband who was raised in Nigeria and you being raised in the UK and that some of those differences are stuff that was constantly shocking to you as well our differences in the idea of what is a good education he came up private he went to private school in Nigeria and he's just really flippant about it because he's like yeah everyone does it so like private school in Nigeria is like what state school is to me and when he said that I, w I was really affronted I was like and I, I was saying all of this internally I was like well why is it a problem that he was privately educated? And why would you think that an, a West African man couldn't do that? Is it because of the way Africa, specifically West Africa, are portrayed by the Western world? Mm. Like just, just a, a duel going off in my mind. And he is, um, by his own admission, he's really privileged. And 
when you when you're raised in a place where you're the majority, it took him a really long time to believe. Yeah, I would say believe in the things I was saying about the smaller specks of racism that eat away at a black British person every day. And it wasn't until our daughter had that really public race, public experience of racism at school where he shed tears. He was like, oh, I get it now. And now his eyes are forever open. But he's also shown me that there are even black people in Britain right now who might be waking up the same time white people are just because where they were originally born they were always front and center there are so many impactful moments in the book one of which is where you talk about the significance of buying a branded pushchair a bugaboo pushchair to be precise and the experience of buying it second hand could you talk a little bit about that because you turn it into such a meaningful metaphor yeah i think you know, even just saying it, people are like, okay, so she was a bit broken, had to buy a secondhand pushchair. No, it was so much more than that. Um, I, and the way I talk about it in the book is, you know, my grandparents, they came from Barbados, um, and they came with so little. And there was always this unspoken rule in the black community, you know, you have to always have on your Sunday best, because you know, racism exists. But if you can pretend to be a different class, you know, you might be able to catch a breather. And so for me, pushing my kid in a bugaboo was a way of putting up that veil almost. It was like, right, I know I'm a black mum. I know I look relatively young. But when you see this pushchair, you're not going to judge me because the women I see with bugaboos, you know, they've got everything together. Like they're on maternity leave. They save for this kid. And so getting that specific pushchair was a way of me trying to protect myself and project a version of myself that would make me feel better about the situation. The way you wrote about pulling your daughter out of school because of racist bullying is really devastating. You explained that this moment was Esme's two days and that every black woman has them at one point or another. What are the two days and when were yours? The two days are the first time you realise you're black and then the second day is the first time you get ostracised for being black. Um, I think the first day I realised I was black, I was on the bus number two coming down from Crystal Palace with my mum. She was at the back of the bus, it was really packed and there was this black guy he clearly struggled with his mental health. Um, but he was just like leaning over me and he was like, Oh my God, you're really ugly. And I was like five or six. And he was like, Oh, you're so black and ugly. No one will ever want you. I am six years old. And this is a guy with exactly the same skin tone as me, like leaning over me, really just really, when I look back and when I speak about it with my therapist, like really, fucking shit up from a very early age if I'm honest and I'd never noticed I was black I everyone at school was black like it there was a minority of white students at the school I went to I was raised in Brixton everyone was black but it was that moment I was like oh I'm this thing and it's not it can't be good for this stranger to be telling me those things and I think the first time I was ostracized for it I primary school year six my best friend Joanna Jeffrey um she was white and her her dad did not like the fact she had a black best friend and um I went to her house to play one evening and um I overheard him saying to uh Joanna's mum that I couldn't come back and that was my and that was quite late in the game actually I was about 11 But that was the first time I felt that proper hit of not being allowed to do something or go somewhere or be friends with someone because I'm black. And you write quite extensively about how much of the prejudice comes from within the black community. So your two days being uh, an experience that you had with a black man or the prejudices that um, growing up someplace you can have about someone else growing up another place. Yeah, we are. We are 
a community who have a lot of work to do. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. That was one of my greatest fears about pushing this book into the world. Um, I was like, I know I'm about to reveal some very hidden truths in the black community. And my best friend read the book early on and was like, oh, babe, I hope you didn't write this to be liked like shit. And I was like, oh, my God. I was like, babe, don't scare me. She was like, and then she tried to, like, pull it back. She was like, no, 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 no. It's great. But she was like, it's so revealing about the, the own things we think about each other within the black community that you must be prepared for some people not to like your openness. And when she explained that, I was fine. No one in my family likes my openness. Like, I'm estranged from everyone because they're like, oh, Candice, you are crazy. I'm like, I am. I am, I am, I am batshit crazy about being dedicated to revealing the truth, no matter how hurtful the truth is, because I've been so harmed by the secrecy of my own community sometimes or the unspoken things or or really things like colorism like I'm a very darker skinned black woman and when I speak about things like hierarchy as a darker skinned black woman no one is trying to hear my voice ever and on top of that I don't give in to the pressures of assimilating to a European beauty standard like I don't wear wigs I do love them I like I pretend to be little Kim on TikTok sometimes and then I wear them but I don't wear a wig in my day-to-day life like I don't feel those pressures I understand some other black women might but I don't but even doing those things I I know they they bring discomfort for a lot of women in my community and so um yeah it it's a hard one um we have our problems but I I do love us (laughs) was part of your fear that you know that the conversation around race and racism is so devoid of nuance that by introducing something like this you were suggesting another layer of nuance and people sort of haven't even got to grips with the first layer does that make sense completely like the the black community, we get it. We're like, yeah, colorism, classism within the black race. We mm-hmm. understand those things, but they are not yet topics that have been opened up into the world. Because even with something like, you know, this social media blackout week, Black Lives Matter, there are many businesses and brands who will only hire influencers or models who are lighter skinned black or could be passed off as exotic like that in itself is a problem but it's not a conversation that has reached say um police brutality it's not there yet and so yeah including this level of nuance into the book I was like Candice really think about who that's for and I did I was like okay it's for the 16 year old black girl who's going to pick up this book thinking it's really cool and you want to talk directly to her because you know she's at that point where these things become a problem and so I just had to keep that reader in mind I am blown away that it has taken off with everyone else but I think for any like um author to be listening like you have to have one kind of reader in mind if not the fear of writing about that kind of nuance, I, I just wouldn't have done it. And it wouldn't have been the book it is. And while your reader who you're writing for may be the 16-year-old black girl, that certainly doesn't mean that it can't and shouldn't be enjoyed by a totally different reader. Oh, gosh, no. Do you know what? this? Oh, a white guy bought it and I was so shocked and he left, like, the most glowing review. I was like, OK, school... Um, I was so amazed by that because I'm like, he's the polar opposite of the reader I had in mind, but he just connected so well with the material. I was like, absolutely. If a if a white middle-aged man is hip to this book, like we all need to get on board because he is the opposite of who I was writing for. And he's found a way to ingest the material and, and quote unquote, educate himself, which is why other people need to read it. But also, if you came across a really fantastically written book about fatherhood, you wouldn't be like, I absolutely can't read that because I'm not a father. It doesn't work both ways around. Exactly. You just be like, oh, yeah, this is cool. I'm going to read it. Um, And I would, you know, I would really ask listeners to uh, read it because 
it's so necessary. And I think so many white mums have been borderline apologetic to me, which they don't need to be. But they've just been like, Jesus, I had no idea it was that bad in many circumstances. And I feel like all my friends need to read it. So we, so the white community can work on how we can go about easing some of the stress and pain for black mums. Something that you write about that, again, I don't think necessarily a lot of people would have realised was something stressful is the decision to move out of London. You had to consider, you write, if there would be any black people in your new community. You didn't want Esme to be the only black child at her school. You write, London was a multicultural melting pot which offered a space where I felt I could actually breathe and succeed. I didn't want to be tolerated. I wanted to be celebrated. But on the other hand, you were terrified of raising a young son in inner city London. Mm, yeah, Again, it's that when you, when I hear you reading these things back, it's that constant duality. And like, I love London. I love London so much, but I couldn't. The idea of raising a black boy in London just it scares me so much, especially with the rise and spike in knife crime. I just I couldn't do it. But also, I thought to myself, well, what are the repercussions of? quote unquote being the only blacks in the village and there were repercussions they're in the book they were there but it was literally something that kept me up at night and you know so many of my white friends are like again I just don't consider that I think about where I want to move I check the property or rental prices and I go or I like a friend was talking online today about the fact that he he's a black guy we have to search how racist a country is before we book a holiday there we can't just like roll a dice and be like oh I'm gonna go here no 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 there are hours of research into how the police are going to treat you in a certain country and being able that whole leaving London topic I think it really highlights how other people who don't live in black skin are afforded such a life of ease it's almost unthinkable you know, down to the postcode I live in, I've gone through at least 10 to 15 hours of research to make sure or think about deeply how this will impact my family. And the way you describe it as this very physical ease, like where you live, where you go on holiday, it's not just like a cultural, social, economic privilege of ease. It's literally geographic. Yeah, it's me going into like I got I got stopped in my local Waitrose. So the day the book came out, I bought some Bolly because I love Ab Fab. Like, oh, I'm gonna drink this whole bottle to myself. And then it like ran out by midday. Drove to Waitrose, really busy in Waitrose. I come out. I'm the only black woman in the area. Uh, did you pay for that? Of course, I paid for it. I don't stop though. I've become really militant. I don't stop. I know he wants me to produce a receipt and I'm not going to do it. And I head back to the car. I then get followed by a different security guard who is like, oh, you know, really sorry, but I just want to see your receipt because the way you came out of Waitrose, we don't think you passed where you check your shopping. And I just thought, I'm exhausted. I'm, it's my publication day. I want to get shit-faced and I can't even do that without being racially profiled in the supermarket. So when I talk about living in ease, unless you've been in a position where you're consistently the minority, it's really hard to imagine. And what would you say when people are shocked by that? Does it piss you off that they're shocked by that? Uh, a bit, because I'm like, oh, where are you living? Where where have you been? Like, We've been having these conversations for years. So I am a little bit, but then a bigger part of me just goes into, well, you're here now mode. What can, you know, what can I do that doesn't interrupt my mental health so much to help you understand the difficulties minorities face in the UK? That's immediately where I go to next. But, you know, I do, I do wonder why it took so long. Like, 
I can't remember how long I've been on Instagram. I have not taken my foot off the gas with trying to educate people about this stuff. And so I always get a bit jarred when someone's like, oh, I just I just didn't know. I often think, oh, why do I do the work I do then? I'm a Pisces. I'm a bit optimistic. I do sense something different in the air this time. Uh, The protests are universal, which is it's so rare that that happens. Um, Social media, as much as it gets a bad rep, you can always come on there and just taste the cultural moment. And the cultural moment right now tastes like pissed off. Everyone is over it. It's like the worst tasting cocktail. And whilst black people, minority voices, we've been doing this for since we were in nappies. um, We need everyone's help. We need this to be an everyone job. And I think we're all just waking up to that. And it does feel pretty powerful right now. The book as memoir begins to feel like a Trojan horse a bit as it goes on, because it's the most impactful and empathic and thoughtful deep dive into knife crime and how much of it stems from a sense of camaraderie. It's I haven't read someone pick apart knife crime like that before. And that's why when I when I look at the cover of your book and I think I'm not your baby mother, I almost want to write a little thing that says, by the way, there is shitloads of everything in this book. <laughs> Do you know the that chapter is called Young, Gifted and Stabbed. I think I done 17 to 19 hours of research. And when I say research, I won't even repeat the hashtags, but there are some really vile videos you can find online and I really just wanted to get into the psyche of these young boys because I'm not a young boy um I've had friends who have brothers who have died so I was able to respectfully ask them questions um and in a not even in a past life like once this is all said and done I'm just gonna have the sickest range or or line of um undertakers I'm obsessed with death like I just want to have a range of funeral homes and so it was really important to me that that chapter was almost scientific in the way I wrote about it because these children and their children Jaden Moody was 14 they die they never come back for things like 20 quid and I I I just I couldn't understand why, especially in London, how it's a topic that constantly gets glossed over. And it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, it's a bit stabby around here, but I do love the vibe. It's like, no, no, we cannot wake up every day and walk past body bags and act like this is normal. Someone has to take the time out to try and make other people understand what their role is in this child's death. And for me... Like, I I don't know, I I speak for myself, but that's my favourite chapter. It's my favourite chapter too. And it strikes me as horrific that a description of an area can even be a bit stabby. Like the way you just said that there, it's a bit stabby, but it's got a really good vibe. Like, it's mind boggling that that's become a sort of accepted part of um, uh, rental lingo. (laughs) Like, you know... Oh, you know, just don't walk past that road at 3am. But other than that, it's all fine. And But I do understand that because the way knife crime is reported, they only ever show one kind of victim. So if you don't see yourself as a victim, why would you have any reason to live in fear? Why? You're just like, oh, yeah, but that's about them, not me. Not really connecting the dots and understanding that, if you, and no judgment, like a, a cheeky drug on a Friday night to take the edge off, I need you to understand your place in that death. Because the likelihood is that child was carrying drugs that get distributed to people who are just like, oh, oh no, I don't know why these stabbings happen. But you know, I'm just having a bit of a laugh and a party on a Saturday night. No, it is a wheel. It's a consistent wheel of death. And um, I just I just really wanted to put that under a magnifying glass for a bit. You're right that that's not something that we're confronted with enough, is how 
everything links together. What was the biggest uh, assumption or myth that you wanted to challenge or dispel? Oh, what was the biggest assumption or myth? I think the biggest one for me always is that uh, the idea that black families can't keep it together, that that just really grates on me or that, you know, and that's why I call I say the word baby mother, that, you know, a black woman walks past you with a child and, you know, the general idea is that she's single because society has painted this false picture of there always being a missing black dad. That has to end. It has to end because even though my parents were separated, my dad, my dad was a little too in my life sometimes, if I'm honest. And I just think that that picture, the idea that you you don't see black nuclear families is really, really damaging. I wanted to end on your brilliant analogy of the KFC bucket as a way to illustrate how much more contained and constrained the options can feel for a black woman. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about your analogy? Yeah, in the book, I've got this like KFC table analogy. And in my mind, there's a bucket of KFC chicken. I love KFC, who doesn't? But around that table, it's a lot of black women who are just forced to share this dead one bucket of KFC. And then there's another table where there's like quinoa and avocado and like organic strawberries, that whole jam, that whole spread. And that table um, has white women at it. And there's a lot of space, like you can move your elbows and there's too much food at that table. And um, my space in the influencer world in even writing this book was me being really clear that I don't want to eat KFC all the time. And I want to show women that even if you have to drag your screeching chair across a shiny floor and plonk it at the table, that has enough space for you. They they may never invite you, but there's enough space for you. I wanted women to know, I wanted black women to know that it is your duty to do that. You are entitled to better food. Hell, if you love KFC, you can stay at that table, but don't ever look over at like a banquet and and only see white faces and feel like you cannot eat what they eat. And yeah, that's the analogy. (laughs) Candice, I so appreciate you coming to talk to us on the Hilo. I Am Not Your Baby Mother is out now. Thank you so much, Pandora. This was brilliant. Thank you so much to Candice for her time. Thank you for listening to The Hilo. You can email us at thehiloshow at gmail.com. You can tweet us at The Hilo Show. You can buy our merch from thehiloshop.com with all proceeds going to charity. 50% goes to show racism the red card. 50% goes to Women's Aid. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.